Hello and welcome back to episode three of the Backpedal Podcast with Jordan Texans Thoughts and John Crumpler, your host today. And we're very, very excited for this special episode with our special guest, Mike Meltzer. Mike, how are you doing today? And would you like to give the viewers a little bit of an introduction to yourself? Sure. I appreciate it, John and Jordan. I appreciate being on. Um, so I've been in Houston for almost 12 years now, or actually, I guess just now over a little 12 years. And uh, I've covered the Texans uh, on a full-time basis, I guess, from 2010 through 2018. I've opined on the team since uh, 2010. Uh, I do work as an attorney in town as well. Um, and I still do a, a lot of radio work for um, Sirius XM. And people uh, like yourselves often have me on to talk about these sort of combined sports and legal issues. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's exactly why we're going to have you here today you are our expert of the day we are going to cover the deshaun watson suspension appeal news um and then we'll get into some other nfl topics later in the episode but john i think i i cut you off and i saw it on your face your excitement so i want to go throw it back to you what you got for us oh no i'm just very excited to have mike on because as he already said this is a great week to have someone who understands sports and who understands legal so jordan if it's okay if you i'd love to kick it off and ask mike Mike, what is you have a pretty unique perspective on the Deshaun Watson proceedings up to this point. Um, what are your thoughts on the decision that they came to and really the appeal process? What what perspective do you have on that? Well, I'm not surprised that Judge Robinson issued a six-game suspension just based on the way that she kind of worked through the reasoning. You know, she had to, you know, basically the NFL was accusing Watson of you know, three different things. I want to make sure I get this right, but it's basically, you know, you have these three categories, the conduct that qualifies as sexual assault. We had number two conduct that poses a genuine danger to the safety and well-being of another person. And we have the third, which is conduct that undermines or puts at risk the integrity of the NFL. The way I looked at that myself was basically there are three things, but it's really about one. Um, specifically number one, because if you found that Deshaun, you know, committed sexual assault as defined by the NFL, then you probably were going to find the second and third because the second, okay, if you're committing sexual assault, it's most likely a, gen a genuine danger to the safety and well-being of another person, you know, so on and so forth. Um, I think a lot of times the way lawyers and in this case, maybe labor lawyers specifically look at things is, okay, after you do sort of the fact finding, um, that Sue Robinson finds that Deshaun violates, you know, by preponderance of the evidence, one, two, and three. Okay, so what do we do now? And then you look to precedent. What has happened before? And what she pointed out is, and she controversially put Deshaun's actions, she termed them a nonviolent uh, sexual assault, which I will also note that she wrote was undisputed, uh, which I found to be an interesting word to be used in that report. It's not like she just used, hey, this is nonviolent sexual assault, but she said in this, in a sentence that it was undisputed that it was nonviolent sexual assault. So I'm kind of curious exactly what that means. But regardless, so she looked back at, you know, what happened to other players previously. And typically what she found was basically with a with a violation like this, the most common suspension was six games. And she felt like if, if there was going to be an increase in what that number was going to be, that the NFL had to put the union and therefore its members on notice of that. And because they failed to do that, she stuck with the six. That was my sort of, those are my sort of initial thoughts on 
the ruling. I, I know the ruling has been, you know, pretty controversial. I understand that. But the way she got to that from a reasoning standpoint, uh, I understood as an attorney. Yeah, I read on Twitter this week, someone said, due process, welcome to the NFL. And that from a purely legal standpoint, it was always going to be precedent-based. Is that is that wrong to say, essentially, that what the NFL was asking for is a bit unprecedented? I would say it's unprecedented. Now, they would say something else, but I think in general, like, first offense, um, what Deshaun is being accused of, that, yeah, asking for a indefinite, you know, at least one year suspension is fairly unprecedented. Now, what they would say and what they have said, what they have argued, what they will, you know, go into in this appeal process is that, well, hey, this is an unprecedented situation, that this is not just one specific accusation. This is not, you know, Ezekiel Elliott. This is not Jameis Winston. This is accusations by, I'm just going to limit it to what the, what the evidence was presented in front of Sue Robinson, the four women that they presented. So they're saying it is unprecedented that we have, yes, you know, a first-time offender, but that he's being accused by four different women of these actions. They would say that part of it is unprecedented, and that's why Deshaun Watson should get the full year indefinite suspension. And oh, Jordan, sorry, I was going to just quickly hop in into this. Just a little minor question is that I was kind of curious in terms of from the legal process. Is it normal? I guess this is a very unprecedented situation, but you know there are nearing thirty total accusations against Deshaun Watson, and is it normal for the judge to just be presented the case based off of those four? cases is that how it usually works because it doesn't seem to make sense to me well it's hard to say because you know what employer do you know has this stuff going on right yeah like if, <laughs> if at our jobs we were sued by many different people like your job could fire you for that like there's no specific protection against mm -hmm. that right um but it would be weird if as part of that like all of a sudden what you're being accused of is not being sort of brought into your workplace and then there's a whole investigative arm that's in charge of figuring out, okay, what of these allegations should we present? So I don't know whether it's strange, not strange. We know that the NFL, Jordan, they interviewed, well, I think it was 10 of the women who yes. were accusing Deshaun Watson. It was 10. And so they ultimately presented evidence of four, which I think leads to the inevitable thought that the NFL, for whatever reason, must have thought that the four cases that they presented were stronger in some way as opposed to the other six that they did not present like that that's that's mm -hmm. what people i'm guessing have to be making that leap and i guess my next kind of question i, I totally hear and i think it makes sense in terms of from my non-legal brain i think you explained that perfectly um i guess my next question would be is um i kind of read a tweet saying i think it was from the tony busby uh press conference and he was alluding to the fact that the nfl very much was not interested in hearing more um, from more than just the 10 women. Do you think that really played a role in that? Or do you think at this point now, just Busby saying what he needs to say out in the media? I would love to know, and I'm sure there's a backstory to that, like there is mm -hmm. on anything, but I wonder guys like, okay, they talked to 10 women and I don't think every single one of them was represented by Tony. I think there might've been one who was not, I, I, I could be wrong about that, but regardless, uh, the vast majority were represented by Tony Busby. So when he says or claims that the NFL wasn't interested, mm -hmm. is that like, oh, Tony Busby offered to have more women speak to the NFL and they said, no, we're fine with these 10. Uh, like, how exactly did that work? Mm -hmm. Because 
I will say, and this is something I've thought for the last year, like if I represented a woman suing Deshaun Watson, or if you represented a woman suing Deshaun Watson, I fail to see the upside of that of the woman then talking to the NFL. Like what possible upside do you have for that? Um, you're suing him, you know, is what I'm saying to NFL investigators, like, is that something that is going to be disclosed in discovery? Is that something that is going to be protected from defamation? Because keep in mind, I, I know this might be like a minor legal point to some, but when you think about a lawsuit, the things that are put in sort of, I'm going to, I think we're like just on, on like the audio part, but if you look at like a sheet of paper, right, and you think about the four corners of the sheet of paper in a lawsuit, like everything you put in there is protected from defamation. Because otherwise, we, we, you'd have constant defamation lawsuits because you're like, well, you're suing me for this. This is preposterous. Like, I never did this, right? So that's protected. But if the women talk to an NFL investigator, like, that's not within a lawsuit, right? That's just a sort of extra judicial process, I suppose. I don't really see what the upside is for them. Like, they need to sit there and they might get some really hard questions um, from NFL investigators. They might not want to answer or have that, you know, record be shared with, you know, just Deshaun Watson's attorneys. Um, so that's that's something I'd be curious about. What is, and because this also comes up when people say things like, well, the Browns traded for Deshaun Watson without talking to any of the women. And my only pushback on that, because I understand the sentiment, is if you are a woman suing Deshaun Watson, what, why would you speak to the Cleveland Browns or the Saints mm. or the Panthers uh, or the Falcons? before they think about trading for him like why would you talk to one of those teams what exactly is the upside for you i don't really see it do you think that speaking with the nfl could have been obviously a big part of busby's legal strategy has been and maybe you'll disagree with this but it looks like using the media and wielding public opinion has been a part of his legal strategy do you think that complying with the nfl could have anything to do with that well okay uh the first part of it i do think that Tony has used the PR part of it uh, pretty extensively as a leverage point. I would say it that way. Can you tell me more, John, kind of about the second part of what your question, like what you mean by that? Uh, do you think it's important to how people perceive the, the case publicly that they were willing to comply with the NFL and assist with their investigation? Yeah, I think so. Yes, I think I think it paints I think it paints his clients in, in a better light. I, I think so. Okay. Yeah, and, and I think it's sort of in the case of the Thursday news conference on, you know, August 4th, I think it seems to fit with the court of public opinion and what people think of the six game suspension for sure. Cause I know some people thought, uh, and maybe it'll happen that Tony was going to announce on Thursday that he, that he was suing the NFL. Yeah. And I don't believe that's happened at this point. So. Yeah, that's actually a perfect segue into one of the other questions I had. Um, and I was kind of regarding, I guess what Watson's camps, options are as of now as that the nfl has appealed the suspension a lot of people are saying that they have that through the nfl pa I, I i believe that watson has the ability to sue the nfl and there has been some history of those uh lawsuits going in the favor of nfl players but in this specific situation i don't have all the details so i, I would love to hear from you what i've read is that if watson were to go sue the nfl his odds don't look very good regarding with the CBA and the rules with that. Is that kind of your understanding as well? And why is that? 
So a couple of things. So one, they can't Deshaun Watson's side can't do anything yet okay. because you have to finish this process before there's any even thought about going to federal court. Like the collectively bargained process is independent arbitrator, in this case Sue Robinson, mm-hmm. then a possible appeal by either side, in this case the NFL, and then there's a decision. You can't sue in federal court until there's a final decision. This is sort of the this is basically like the, the equivalent, I would say, of arbitration, essentially. That like you can't mm-hmm appeal an award of arbitration until it's actually awarded. Um, and, and so we're not going to see any kind of uh, lawsuit against the NFL on Deshaun's behalf until this guy, Peter Harvey, Roger Goodell's designee, right. makes a decision on the punishments. Uh, first thing, you asked me, Jordan, about you know some of the other cases that have happened. NFL players have not had a fun time in court uh, you know, trying to fight these kinds of punishments. Tom Brady in the Southern District of New York, most famously, uh, Ezekiel Elliott a couple of years ago, and I forget which federal court, but I think that might that might have been in like the Northern District of Texas. And I think in layman's terms, this is the way I would frame it. What courts like, and especially federal courts, I think, is for you know dueling parties to essentially work it out by themselves, right? Like it's easier if a judge doesn't have to make that decision. And when you think about this is why there's a lot of leeway to arbitration in federal court, as in if I sign an arbitration agreement and all of a sudden there's an issue and the other side moves to, like, make me go to arbitration and compel it, then the way the laws work is there's going to be a lot of deference to that because it's like, hey, you know, this was, you know, you agreed to this. And in this case, the NFLPA, not just Deshaun Watson, but the NFLPA two and a half years ago. They agreed to this process. It was part of collecting collective bargaining, like under a federal law, that this is what the process is going to be. It's going to be, you know, you have this investigation. It's going to be an independent arbiter. They decide there can be an appeal by the NFL or the union. And so there's going to be a whole lot of deference given to that process because it's collectively bargained. And the other part, I think that's very important. This really came up a lot in Brady, which I thought was just a preposterous decision by the NFL, when those judges, and especially at the, at the Second Circuit in that case, when they looked at that, they're not really going, they're not talking so much about the underlying merits of the case, like the merits of the argument, like, hey, you know, the NFL is like, the NFL asked Tom Brady for his cell phone, he said no, and now all of a sudden they're making that like a whole big point of contention, right. even though it was never really made to be a big deal in the first place. Like those judges are not looking at the underlying merits of the case or like, hey, is there any actual evidence that Tom Brady actually deflated footballs? Like they're not even looking to that evidence. They're, they're not going to the merits of the case. They're just looking at it and saying, OK, was this process essentially somehow manifestly unjust mm. for the other party? And because it's collectively bargained and now there's precedence in a couple of different federal uh circuits then let's say this peter harvey says okay the deshaun watson suspension is 12 games or 14 or indefinite at least a year i would be very surprised if deshaun watson was able to overturn that in federal court based on what's happened in the last 10 years okay i hear you i hope that made sense no it did (laughs) no it makes a lot of sense 
they they they're not looking whether he's guilty or not. It's their job to examine whether the NFL is allowed to yeah. make that decision under their current contractions with the players' association. 100%. Yes, okay. you you put it in a shorter way, better than I did. Yes, you're 100 percent right. <laughs> I, I think John. I think you gotta you gotta be a lawyer. I don't I don't think doctor's the path anymore. I think. Yeah, you must have picked the wrong degree. Yeah. Um, yeah. Stop Mike. helping people medically. Yeah. <laughs> they don't need you. No. Have people fight over money. That's that's the better option. Oh yeah, I mean we're we're doing the same thing with insurance. So uh, maybe 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 a few tweaks. Uh, Mike, our podcast is called the Backpedal, and I mean, we named it that based on how to engage with hot takes in the ways that corners do. And I I do want to give you a, a backpedal, which is I'm not going to engage with that. I disagree. Or if you're going to press on this before you go. Um, reportedly the NFL did really want to settle. Like you said, these courts prefer that parties settle individually. They don't want to have to come to a decision with Deshaun Watson before Sue Robinson was ultimately forced to make her decision. And now that's been appealed of 12 games. If you had been counsel to Deshaun Watson, would you have recommended he take that suspension? So this, I think, I think you're asking me, John, about like, I think Charles Robinson, I have this saved in my, in my Twitter. I'm going to go to this and, and kind of cross references as I'm talking so I think he had reported that the way this worked was the settlement talks between the NFL and Deshaun Watson's camp was either the indefinite suspension a year, which I'm like, okay, why would you take that? But basically like not really a whole lot in terms of a monetary fine versus the 12 games and kind of a large monetary fine. I think losing a year is a huge deal, especially when you've you know lost one already. Um, you know how many guys have come back for not playing for two years? It does seem like the money is a big part of it for for the Watson side in this camp, which seems to be kind of a bad look. Um, I would have probably recommended, like to me, even if you thought things were going to go well with Sue Robinson, which clearly you thought because she reportedly said during the hearing that, hey, she was not going to give a an indefinite suspension of at least a year. So you knew that you were going to you were that you were going to sort of win at the Sue Robinson level. But knowing that the NFL had the absolute right to appeal, they were probably going to do it. You know, I I don't know if they did or didn't, but I, I would I, I, I kind of feel like. If the, if the two sides were like looking at these two posts and, and one of them is, you know, indefinite at least a year, but not a lot of money versus 12 games, but a whole bunch of money. Like, I feel like you can negotiate that. Like, can it be, mm-hmm. you know, could you somehow reduce the monetary fine? If I were his, if I were his counsel, like I'd probably try to encourage a whole lot to preserve any or as much of this season as possible. That that's what that's what I that's what I would have tried to do because I, I just you know a, a player's earning power and his ability to play it, it's very finite you know it's a max you know I know Brady is basically forty five now but like it, it's not it's not a very long time and, and so to me and this is just me talking like if this Charles Robinson thing is true and I'm intrigued that I, I feel like more people aren't really talking about it if the Watson camp who knows what the monetary fine will be. Five million, eight million. I get it. It's a lot of money, but man, I would take that over a year suspension, even if you're guaranteed to be back in 2023. I would have taken that over the possibility of what might happen moving forward here, especially with the the contract that the Browns had handed to Sean with all the guaranteed. Is it two thirty or two fifty million? Two thirty, I think. Two thirty. 
I, so, I think the signing bonus was what, like forty-five to fifty million dollars. So, like, this is money that Deshaun ostensibly has in hand that yeah. you know he can that, that he could you know pay immediately. And I, I just think that preserving that season or preserving, I should I should say, part of the season is really that important. And I've got a follow up based on that that I have to ask, and it's something I fought a lot. It's people that I've seen on social media say that good lawyers would not have allowed this to happen. Do you think that? Deshaun Watson has received good legal counsel throughout this process, or at least if he has, that he's ignored a lot of it. Like, should should this have ever been allowed to escalate to a situation where it was not settled for over a year and a half and allowed to become really the circus that it is? So and I know that's that's a loaded question, but <laughs> well, it's a loaded question because you know, full disclosure, my my firm uh, does have uh, Deshaun's attorneys as. Uh, co-counsel on, on some cases so and so I have to kind of like I have to sort of adjust my answer a little bit but I think there are, there are really two parts there's the the legal counsel and there is the sort of general business agency part of it mm-hmm. and so you know here's what I would look at it I would say when Deshaun Watson hires Rusty Harden I think the important thing for him is making sure there is as little criminal liability as possible and objectively, like they were able to find a way to have two grand juries in Texas find no probable cause. Um, so that's real to me. That's like the fundamental reason why Deshaun Watson hired Rusty Harden. Um, I think when it comes to this sort of thing, I, I believe that Rusty has talked about how he's been involved in the NFL investigation and kind of some of that back and forth. Um, but then you also have the NFL PA lawyers involved in that as well. Uh, Jeffrey Jeffrey Kessler specifically. So when I look at Deshaun, like I think it's more. I would wonder when I look at his camp. I don't really question it more from a a legal counsel standpoint. It's more just mm-hmm. kind of like the way from a. There's some of the people like the Quincy Avery, the Brian Bernie, like all these names that we have heard about for some reason the last year and a half. Yep. To where, like that's the part that I that I question. And I guess before. The other thing I'd wonder about is before Deshaun Watson even hired Rusty Harden, because that was obviously after he got sued, right? Um, there were some communications between his agency, not David Mulligetta specifically, but like people at Athletes First with Tony Busby's law firm. And I do openly wonder if maybe that could have been resolved uh, before it exploded publicly. But I will tell you, like, Obviously, at the very least, like Deshaun was pretty reckless when it came when it comes to his behavior. Um, you know, he, mm-hmm. according to the New York Times, you know, he saw what sixty six massage therapists, and yep. you kind of feel like with that number over those over those couple of years that maybe it was only a matter of time, um, and there there was really no way to um, there there was no way that 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 just basically created a really problematic situation because. At some point, somebody was going to get very upset, understandably so, about some of the things that he was allegedly doing. Uh, so hopefully that, that answer made sense. I'm, I'm, a, I'm obviously limited a little bit in, in exactly what I can say. But I, I really, I genuinely, uh, I genuinely do think that when I, if I'm going to question Deshaun and his camp, it's much more about the way he's handled maybe his career, the trade request, all of that, as compared to the legal counsel part of it. That makes sense. I hear that. I think that not, nothing that's happened legally to me has been a, a huge shock. They obviously succeeded, which was very important to them, with the grand juries in March. 
That's why he got traded. That's why he got the brand new contract. And the cases were filed in March of 2021, and they have almost all of them settled a year and a half later. I know that may seem like a long time for people as far as general, you know, but I can tell you legally for a case to last a year and a half is incredibly common, if not on the on the light side of how long something might last. Okay. Okay. Um, I think the last thing I just wanted to touch on um, is kind of the Houston Texans side of things. They were mentioned in, in this whole fiasco and they, I believe they have settled all 30 cases that they were involved with. I guess, Mike, what's your kind of perspective on the Texans involvement? Um, sure. in I was intrigued, you know, when they were sued about a month ago and mm-hmm. I saw the filing and I tweeted a whole bunch of things about it. Um, it intrigued me because I felt like without knowing all the details about the underlying facts, I, I thought it was going to be tough for anybody accusing the Texans of anything to kind of yeah. like walk through the steps of like linking what happened to them and then kind of trace it and kind of link the Texans into it because that's what, you know, in a crude way they would have to do from a legal standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think from a Texans perspective, it seems to me like pretty good lawyering in that they look at potential liability. Like sometimes even if you're, even if you're right on the law, it can, it can take a while to be right on the law, yeah. right? And there could be a whole lot of, you know, expense and unnecessary aggravation in even, in even defending one lawsuit, let alone the possibility of others. And so I just look at it, John and Jordan's face, and I would say, okay, the Texans, when you, and the numbers get kind of confusing here, but the Texans, you know, they take one lawsuit. Deshaun was sued, I think, by, I think it was 24, but there were some other possibilities they had 30 settlements, which kind of indicates to me that they kind of looked at the landscape and they were like, okay, we want to make this as all encompassing as possible. We want to make sure there are no possible liabilities anywhere out there as it relates to Deshaun. I think it was, I think it was a very effective uh, move uh, from their part. Sometimes I, I think a lot of the law is driven by just the pure business, the money part. And I, I say that respectfully because obviously the allegations here are very serious ones, but mm-hmm. from an organization standpoint, you know, it's best to kind of, you know, tie this up in a bow and essentially make sure that moving forward, you don't have to worry about anything legally as it relates to your former franchise quarterback. Definitely. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think they can, hey, I think everyone is hoping, especially Texans fans, that we can really just put this fiasco behind us. So it seems like that the Texans are doing a good job of that. Yeah, we're all ready to stop talking about it, except for the <laughs> fact that we've got that first round draft pick and... It's going to be a lot better if Deshaun Watson's off Man, the field, that's for sure. When I hear uh, these Cleveland people t- or Ohio people talk about, like, man, we've been dealing with this for, you know, five months. Yeah. I'm like, five months? Hey, what, <laughs> what about us? We've they been don't know the half of it. Calendar. Like, we've been dealing with this for the last year and a half, essentially. Like, you know, I can't feel too badly for them. No. Oh, no. It's a never-ending story. They... Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I don't even know. I mean, it's never really going to end until Deshaun gets back on the field and even after that because you want to see how he plays, how he deals yeah. with all this, and that might be this year. That might be in September 2023. Who knows at this point? Jesus. Mike, do we really appreciate your perspective on that. And if you've got time, we'd love to talk a little uh, Dolphins, Brady, Sean Payton with you. Sure, I, I can stick around for that one topic. Then, then I'll have to run. But I'm absolutely, I, I'm, I'm game for that because it is a legitimately fascinating story. So I think we want to cover it from. Let's talk a little bit about 
legally what the NFL found and what punitively they decided. And then Jordan and I, from a football perspective, wanted to talk about if that would have been worth tampering for. So for our audience, for those who do not know, I believe it was on Tuesday afternoon, the NFL released that they had found indisputable evidence that the Miami Dolphins had tampered with Tom Brady in both the 2019 offseason before he came to Tampa Bay and during this past season. And at the same time they were tampering with Tom Brady this past offseason, they were tampering with New Orleans Saints head coach Sean Payton, who coincidentally shares a agent with Tom Brady. And they called it, I believe the word they used was unprecedented in scope. And they ultimately penalized the Dolphins with a first round draft pick in 2023 and a third round draft pick in 2024, while also verifying every allegation from Brian Flores, except for the big one that no one was paid to tank. Um, Mike, when you read that briefing, what are your general thoughts on it? Such a fascinating story, and part of it is because for some reason it, it has not become a bigger story, which I talked about on SiriusXM four months ago. Uh, one of my topics was, why is this not a bigger story? I still feel like it should be a bigger story. So I, I always think the, the way that you like organize a document is always important. Like Not just legally, but just like in anything. Like John's medical write-ups, like, what do you put up first? What do you put last? Like That matters because it sort of reflects like what you think is important and what you think is not. And so the NFL focused on the tampering first. Uh, and then the second thing was the tanking to improve the draft position. I mean, the, the tampering, like, listen, you got to give Mike Florio credit. He was the guy who reported it. Pro football talk, he was on it. That essentially, if you had to sum it up in one sentence, if Brian Flores had not sued the NFL, then the Dolphins would have Tom Brady, Brady at quarterback and Sean Payton as head coach. Is essentially what it, what it appears to be, like, based on that report and the NFL's findings in this – you know, quote, independent investigation. Uh, I thought it was fascinating that Ian Rapport, a guy who works for the NFL, he talked pretty openly Tuesday on the NFL Network about how this was about as egregious as it gets as far as tampering violations. Uh, so the Dolphins can kind of continue to be a clown show just in general and with regards to this. And one thing I will point out uh, connected to what John mentioned about, you know, the Flores alleging that Stephen Ross, whether he actually offered $100,000 to lose games. They didn't deny it. Yeah, they didn't deny it. Like, this is what they wrote. Uh, one such comment is a claimed offer by Stephen Ross to pay Brian Flores $100,000 to lose games, as to which there are differing recollections about the wording, <laughs> timing, and context. However phrased, such a comment was not intended or taken to be a serious offer, nor was the subject pursued in any respect by Stephen Ross or anyone else at the club. You know what that little number three didn't say? It didn't say no. He never said it, <laughs> right? Like it's not a, it's not a, it's not a categorical denial in any way. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think you know I, if I was Brian Flores, like I'd feel pretty vindicated by this. And again, like the, the second thing they found is that Stephen Ross expressed his belief that the Dolphins' position in the 2020 draft should take priority over the team's win loss record. Um, so that part of it was also found as well. Um, I have to admit, I have like my own internal debates about these things because like I can kind of understand what Stephen Ross was thinking with regards to that. Like it's not different from what the Astros did 10 years ago. Right. And I think that the Miami Dolphins were better off losing more games in 2019. As it turned out, it wouldn't have necessarily mattered had they been better at drafting because they had the number five pick and they should have taken Herbert over Tua. They failed to do so. 
And, you know, here they are in this situation where they have a talented team this year, especially offensively, but we'll see what happens with Tua. Um, but I, but I understand that like, it's a tenuous like thing in professional sports, especially a violent sport where I can think the best thing for a team is to lose. I think for the Texans, it is the best thing for the long term for them to lose a lot of games in the fall, candidly. But if I was the owner of the team, you kind of have to walk a fine line when it comes to what you say to people in the building about that and how you like walk that line as properly as possible. It's a difficult line to walk from from a legal perspective, from a team building perspective. For me, I when I always think about tanking, I always think about kind of what it does to your team culture and going out there and actively, maybe not actively telling your players, but it's a bit destructive if, if your players aren't going to be, you know, putting 100% into the game, if the coaches aren't fully invested and whatnot. So, yeah, you're right, Mike. Like, I don't know how Stephen Ross can go about that, but I know what he can't do is pay the head coach to, to lose. That's the one thing you can't Yes, that he cannot do, yes. When I think about tanking, I really think of two different – I think there's organic tanking, which is kind of what the Texans are doing right now, and that, hey, we have a really bad roster, and there may be some minor upgrades we could make, but we're not incentivized to make them. It's the best for the long term other than the key pieces to roll out this team. And then there is artificial tanking, and I think of when the Philadelphia Eagles sat Jalen Hurts – was it hurts for that last game? And uh, yeah, they ultimately, ago, yes. yeah. Yes. And they ultimately, they went up uh, three Washington. spots in the draft because of that. And they were able to make that trade with Miami, which netted yep. them a future first. Um, and that really felt like, okay, <laughs> you are throwing the game away. But I mean, I was, I was surprised at how much they admitted. Cause really the only thing they held back on is, you know, the, the competitive nature of the games, which, is the crux of our multi-billion dollar industry that mm-hmm. was that was intact but everything else like ross's character uh, his intents for the organization was true I, I also find it if you think if you kind of zoom out and you think about the big picture so it appears that tua is very popular among the miami dolphin fans right but it's now clear they tried to trade for deshaun watson last fall uh which i can't blame them for and then they tried to get Tom Brady this offseason until the Brian Flores lawsuit completely blew that up. So it is very clear, and I understand this is like high-level stuff, Watson, Brady, I get that. You know, elite players mm-hmm. are a very good one, however you would characterize it. But, like, they clearly don't have that much faith in the guy they picked to be their franchise quarterback as well. So that's another angle to it also. Like, I know Tyree Hill's doing podcasts, like, you know, every day seemingly we're trying to pump up Tua with, like, this and that, but – the most accurate quarterback in the league. Yeah, I mean, just like look at the evidence. They tried to get Deshaun Watson. They tried to get Tom Brady. They, they've tried to replace him two different times, and he's only played two years in the NFL. I, I'll comment. I think the saving grace of that is at least they have – you know that the head coach was taken on after the Peyton and Brady dream was dead. So at least hopefully uh, Mike McDaniel is a guy who believes in, to, in Tua. Jordan, thoughts on that? uh who is an interesting thing is it's it's very rare that i guess you kind of see a quarterback like him i guess i shouldn't say it's very rare but like like mike said it he's only had two years in the league and if you look at the dolphins supporting cast like i don't feel like you can accurately say that Tua has been given a fair chance to succeed and now they've been investing Jalen waddle tyreek hill they brought in Teron Armstead, that left tackle. We got new offensive scheme and everything. So I think now he might actually be given a fair chance to be fairly evaluated. And 
I don't know. I don't know what's going to come of it, but I think he's got great weapons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, like, he really, I mean, you look at it like Hill, Waddle, they signed Cedric Wilson. Uh, they they signed a left tackle in Armstead if he can stay healthy. They signed Connor Williams. Uh, they they have Jasicki, who's a hell of a pass catching tight end. You know they have a couple of like McDaniel style running backs in yeah. Edmonds and Moster. Like they have a lot of talent around Tua. It's one of those no excuses kind of situations to me. I agree. And now it's time to put up or shut up for sure. And I yep. think this is a great segue into our next topic because. I mean, hypothetically, I don't think the surrounding cast would be this good if they had landed Brady and Sean Payton. You probably have to deal some picks for those guys. But uh, Jordan, I'll give this one to you. Press or backpedal, a Tom Brady and Sean Payton-led Miami Dolphins team would be the favorites in the AFC. It's tough as well because the AFC is so stacked um, with the Chiefs and, and all those other teams at the top there. But I'm going to have to press on that one. I think Dolphins definitely with Brady and Sean Payton. We already talked about the talent that they have on the offense with the weapons. And I think, yes, you're right. They would have to lose some of the picks in in that sense. But you've also got the Tom Brady factor in terms of bringing over talent on on cheap free agent deals. We see it this year with Julio Jones. We've seen it with Antonio Brown and, and talking about the Tampa Bay additions. And he's done the same thing with New England. And so I think... Factoring that in as well, that kind of offsets maybe some of the talent they wouldn't have gotten with some of the picks. So I think Brady, behind that O-line with the weapons I would have right now, that's a formidable, formidable offense. I think you're talking about a top five offense potentially. The defense, on the other hand, um, they've got some pieces there, but I don't think that they're going to be a top 10 unit. I think they're borderline top 15. Um, Is that good enough to be a Super Bowl winner? I mean, it depends on any given year, but I would say that it's good enough to be a favorite in the AFC. What about you, John? I would probably still take Buffalo. I think for for me, it comes down to the defense. I don't know how I feel about the pieces, and I know that Brian Flores, he schemed a lot of pressure there. He schemed a lot of really smart coverage looks, and they won games on turnovers and time of possession. I think Tua ran more um, RPO than any other quarterback in the league last year, and I think it would have cost a lot of draft capital to get those guys. I mean, Brady can force his way out by virtue of being a veteran and the greatest of all time, but I still think you would have had to cough up some valuable picks to Tampa Bay, um, some valuable picks to New Orleans for their head coach. Mike, where do you fall? Uh, Where do I fall? Um, I don't think they would be the favorites. Uh, I don't think they'd be the favorites in their division. I think Buffalo is a better football team. They have – well, I don't know what you know how you analyze Brady versus Josh Allen. Obviously, very different players. But I think the Bills have the best roster in football. I know they lost Jordan Poirier this week. That's a big deal. Um, but still, they, they are just so loaded on both sides of the, the ball. They signed Von Miller. So they signed him to a hell of a long deal. But hopefully he – I mean, that's kind of the missing piece because they're trying to you know draft different guys on the edge who haven't you know fully given them what they want. But I, I just think that's a really excellent football team. It, you know, if you look at Buffalo last year, they lost a lot of bad games, See, like consistently. I feel like, you know, they had like five or six really bad losses. But when they won, they did not win close games. Uh, and I'm not saying it as – I'm not saying that to say, like, they didn't win close games. I mean, like, they didn't win – they didn't, like, win close games. They won games by a ton. Uh, they would be blowing teams out, like winning by double digits routinely. And you saw what they did in the playoffs. They hammered the Patriots. They crushed them in a, in a pressure game. And then 
then they obviously should have beaten Kansas City, and they failed to do so. So even if it was Sean Payton and Tom Brady, I think the Bills would still be favored in the division and in the AFC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was great. Mike, did, thank you so much for your perspective on that. It's just ways to think about the topic that the rest of us, just in ways we haven't been taught to think. Absolutely. I was glad to join you guys. Thank you so much. I yes. appreciate it. Thank you, Mike, so much. I know I got a lot smarter from this episode. I hope the viewers did as well. I know my extent, my legal knowledge extent is just watching <laughs> the TV show Suits. That's all I know. So we're really, really appreciative of you coming on and joining us. And then hopefully it won't be the last time we'll have you on the Backpedal Podcast. Thank you, Mike. Sounds good. Thank you, guys. All right. Take care, guys. Thank you for listening. Um, find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, at the Backpedal, as well as our YouTube channel. So appreciate you guys for listening and tune in next week for the next episode. All right, y'all.